0: So, up until Thursday afternoon, I was working through the next section of Isaiah, thinking that, you know, that's just the direction that that the Lord has for us. And then, of course, everything coming out in the news on Friday morning, and I just really changed my mind and decided to go a different direction, and Friday afternoon and into yesterday. Um, And so I'd like you to turn this morning to the book of Esther, if you would, for a few moments. The book of Esther. Using a house Bible, it's page 410. It seems a very strange setting for a story of God's grace. These historic events actually occurred in what is modern-day Iran, a thousand, more than a thousand miles east of Israel and Jerusalem conversations that we're going to read about probably took place in Old Persian. The events recorded here are found in one of only two books in the Bible that don't explicitly mention God. And so, as I say, it might seem a strange place to see a story of God's grace, but in the end, there is a great feast and celebration of thanksgiving for God's gracious preservation of life. So my mind came to the book of Esther. And the historical background of what's going on is recorded in the first three verses. Let's take a look at them. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. Think about the extent of this. Great empire now. From India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. The setting is in Susa, in ancient Persia, modern Iran, the secondary capital of the Persian Empire. The king on the throne is Xerxes, or as he's called here, Ahasuerus. This is the 5th century BC. This is the mightiest empire in the world at its time. As it says, 127 provinces from Ethiopia clear over to India. Just picture that in your mind, this wide swath of the world covered by this one empire, and the king is throwing a six-month-long celebration of his power and his glory and all the pomp of his kingdom. And in the middle of that, we get the beginnings of this irony that really runs throughout this entire story. And I I just had a great time kind of re- rereading this book this week and thinking about all of the details we, we don't even have time for but uh, it would reward your reading carefully sometime just to see the, the uh, amazing grace and providence of God. But we do find the beginnings of the irony coming out in verses 10 and 11. If you drop down there, we're just going to kind of skim through the book here this morning. Esther chapter 1, verse 10, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded mehumun Biztha. Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zithar, and Karkos, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. (laughs) So here it is, in spite of being the most powerful king in all the world, in spite of having the vastest empire in the known world at that time, here's a king who cannot control his queen, right? In spite of being someone who is supposed to be seen as practically omnipotent, whose word and decree cannot be reversed. That'll come up again and again in this book. Here is this almighty, powerful, omnipotent man, and his queen makes a laughing stock out of him. And it's supposed to be recorded that we might see the futility of what people look at as worldly power. We look at the world around us, and we see people who seem practically omnipotent, right? People look at presidents of great powers and leaders of big countries with huge economies and, and people strategically located in the, power, in the halls of power in those countries, and they, they think of these people as being untouchable, sovereign all-powerful, I mean, just mighty and able to do anything and shape the course of their country and even the world, in that for that matter. This is the kind of man this was, no doubt. But here in the record of Scripture, we have this first hint of irony that we must not take the quote-unquote omnipotence of the world too seriously, right? That's the point. We should not be too consumed with uh, the power of the world where it is a vain and empty thing. And then we get to chapter 1 and verse 16, and we see how the story begins to unfold. Then Mermakun said, In the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same of all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdoms, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice, verse 21, pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mermican proposed. And then if you drop down to chapter 2, verse 5, it says that now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away. He was bringing up... Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, and she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women had gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred or Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So now in the story we have our first two sort of main characters, right? Mordecai and this young woman named Esther. And they were Jews. They were God's people. You remember that after the decrees releasing many of the people to go back and return to Judah. Some of them ended up staying in Babylon. Perhaps they were felt like they were unable to make the journey and to return to the land, or perhaps they were um, not allowed for various reasons. Individuals were not allowed to return. Um, or maybe they just had found a good life there in Persia and had just decided that that was a better thing for them and for their families to just stay where they were. They had grown comfortable there. And Mordecai and Esther seemed to me to have been somewhat compromised characters. This is not to say that they were not godly people in their own way. But, you know, even their names, Mordecai, it's a Hebraized version of the Babylonian name for the god Marduk. And Esther is named after Ishtar, the, the goddess. Um, and, and so these people already you know, had become a part of this worldly culture. And in addition to that, they're keeping their identity, their connection with the people of God a secret. I don't know exactly what all was motivating that, but it ended up with Esther being in the harem of the king of this pagan people. Now she's surrounded by um, temptations to disobey her God. Food uh, is being put before her that would not have been in keeping with God's laws about what the Jews should eat. And she became a part of the emperor's harem. And, you know, we might look at that and we understand this is a woman who, in many cases, we might say had no choice in the matter, right? She didn't volunteer for this necessarily. But at the same time, you remember Daniel and his three friends who were in a similar situation, who took a clear stand on what God had commanded them to do. It's, I think it's true that there's always a choice, right? It might be a very, very difficult choice, but we always have a choice. And here is a woman and a man who, while godly and while in many cases heroic in, in their own way, were nevertheless, um, I think, really kind of compromised people at this point. I think more than likely a gradual imperceptible shift had happened in their adjustment to the pagan culture around them. And, you know, that's not too hard to imagine. Even David, a man after God's own heart, was a man who amassed to himself a harem. And so we can understand, I think, all of us, the pressure to sort of privatize our faith, right? And like, keep it uh, in our hearts. But outwardly really just become conforming to the culture around us. And of course, God's greatness is on display here because He uses, He sovereignly uses even imperfect people to accomplish His providential purposes. And that's exactly what He does, what He did all those years ago. Another key element of this account is set up for us in this second chapter, in verse 21 and following. Chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Tirosh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry "...and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus." So there's an attempted coup. And verse 22, "...and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king." No doubt the news of this plot was told to the king and he was made aware of it. But of course, this is all we have about it here. And it's almost like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. The the plot is dealt with and now it is, the immediate threat is gone and it's quickly forgotten by everybody except the scribes whose job it was to keep the palace chronicles. And you know, in a book like Esther, where God is not mentioned by name, someone might say, well, why is this in the Bible? Where is God? And the answer is, He's right here. He's right here between the lines. In fact, where He often is working, right? Between the lines, in the blank spaces, with His hidden hand, He is sovereignly, behind the scenes, ordaining all things whatsoever comes to pass. And this is exactly what he's doing here. His providence, his seeing and planning ahead, is being being manifest, even though we don't yet understand its significance. And of course, in providence, timing is everything, right? That is the nature of providence. God brings about all things in His time and according to His purposes. And even though God's hand is hidden... And even though his timing to us is suspect, his ways are always working omnipotently for the good of his people. And so we get to chapter 3, and into the story comes the villain. And this is the part where everybody shakes their rattles and yells their boos because now we have introduced into the story A new character. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai why do you transgress the king's command so here is the first interaction between Mordecai and this man by the name of Haman and he's called here in this passage and what an Agagite there are no less than 5 references to the Agagite in the book of Esther. The Agagite is significant because he is connected to the Amalekites. And that has a long history in the scripture. Back in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites attacked the people of God, the people of Israel. And God made a promise that he would have war with the Amalek, the people of Amalek from generation to generation and would blot them out. He said the same thing again in Deuteronomy chapter 25, that he would blot these people out. The fear of these people, the Amalekites, is one of the things that really kept Israel from going in and taking the promised land. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness in unbelief. And finally, God gave the command to, uh, uh, later on, to King Saul to kill all of the Amalekites and all of his people. But King Saul, as you know, spared this man by the name of Agag. King Agag. And now his people continued to threaten the people of God. In fact, it's almost like Mordecai and Haman are sort of reenacting this whole confrontation between Agag and Saul. Mordecai is even referred to in chapter 2, verse 5, as the son of Kish, a Benjaminite just like King Saul. And this enmity, this enmity between Mordecai and Haman was really just the latest expression in the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that was expressed way back in Genesis chapter 3. And ultimately, of course, this is about the Satan and the Christ. But the serpent's animosity extends to all human beings that are made in the image of God. As the Scripture says, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he is especially, of course, concerned to destroy those human beings that are being remade in the image of God in Christ. So the first man failed to to crush the serpent, and now the serpent will always be biting at his heel. And just like that, Saul failed to kill Agag, and now the Agagite will pursue this son of Kish, and in fact all of the people of Israel, to death. And so we read in chapter 3, verse 5, that when Haman... Verse 5, that when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone. And so, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And if you skip down to verse 13, still in chapter 3, Verse 13, he speaks with the king and he gets authorization to send out letters that were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And of course, the idea was that this would come into the king's treasury. And verse 14, And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into Confusion. This would have been a massive massacre indeed to think of all of those Jews helpless before their murderers. But as sad as it is to think about that, it perhaps pales in comparison with the millions of unborn lives that have been taken since Roe became, as it were, the law of the land back in 1973. Somebody already mentioned this morning, I think 62, 63 million, by most counts, 62 million unborn babies killed in the last 50 years in the United States alone. That's far more than all of the people killed in all of the wars that America's ever fought in combined, far more. That's two unborn babies for every single living Texan today. The weakest and most helpless human beings imaginable have been set upon by selfish and ungodly men and women The weakest, who cannot even raise their voices in protest for themselves, have found their lives being snuffed out. I'm talking about individual human beings with their own DNA and their own heartbeat. Some of them even ripped from limb from limb alive. Forgive me. Some of them burned alive in their mother's uterus and I mean burned, I've met a survivor of such a saline abortion. Born with a little two-pound body, uh, scarred from the burning in her mother's womb, escaped by a thread that one place in all the world she should have been safest. And by the way, do you think she's pro choice? (laughs) By no means. Whatever happened to her rights? What a horror Satan has unleashed upon the image of God. He comes to kill and to destroy. And so the plot was set. Slaughter this whole people. And that brings us to chapter four, verse number one. And when Mordecai learned that when he learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes as a sign of mourning and grief and, and anxiety and and desire to to seek the face of God. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. So Mordecai is in grief, All of the people of God, all across the land of Persia, are all in mourning, in grief, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so here Mordecai comes to the gate in verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and he, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city to in front of the king's gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave them a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in before the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is a very interesting interaction, and I I find it strange that the first thing that happens is that Mordecai comes clearly with a heart full of turmoil over what's been decreed, in sackcloth and ashes. And the first thing that Esther does is to send him clothes. As if, you know, the main concern is to just sort of stop an embarrassing relative from making an exhibition, you know. We all have those relatives, right? And notice how isolated she seems to be. I mean, all of the kingdom knows about this. It's spread to all of the Jews. But she had so isolated herself from the people of God that she's completely in the dark. And so the plan is made to petition the king. And her immediate response is to consider what a personal danger this will be for her. And it will be. She could risk death uh, at the hand of this king by coming in unbidden. And Mordecai says to her, If you keep silence, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, right? Why? Because God is faithful, right? He's faithful. And God's good purposes are not dependent on any particular person. It's not dependent on what president is in the Oval Office or who's sitting on the bench of the Supreme Court or who's in the legislature in the the different states. God's purposes are not ultimately dependent on any human in any position. Nevertheless, He does providentially use people. And so Mordecai says to her, perhaps you were raised up just for this time, for just such a time as this, in the hidden providence of God who raises up kings and queens and presidents and senators and justices, who raises up individuals and organizations, many of them flawed, just like Mordecai and Esther, but he raises them up for such a time as this. God uses people, He does, and He uses prayer. He uses the fasting and the prayer of His people all across that country. His people were on their knees crying out to God to be merciful and gracious to them. And I wonder, I wonder how many prayers of God's people have gone up since the uh, in leading up to the reversal of Roe and and Casey. I wonder how many church gatherings have met through these last 50 years to cry out to the God of heaven that He would be gracious, that He would forgive our sins, and that He would heal our land. I wonder how many courageous sidewalk counselors have knelt down and prayed with with some individual and prayed in front of an abortion uh, provider that uh, God would close these doors and do away with this great evil. I wonder how many have labored long years in the shadows, working and laboring and praying, praying, praying exactly for this end. And friends, those prayers have not been forgotten. Amen? And today we're remembering that. Today we're giving praise to God for answered prayers, piled up, stored up before His throne over the last half a century, waiting their proper time in the providence of God. I think of it like the prayers of those martyred saints in the book of Revelation who cry out, How long, O Lord? How long before you judge and avenge our blood? And the answer comes back to them, Wait a little longer. Persevere. It's in the timing of God until finally... And the moment that the angel stands up and he swears by him who lives forever and ever that 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 there will be no more delay and God's judgment falls and his hand is made known this is what happened finally after the prayers of these people for all of this time and this is what's happening in our land and what a joy it is what a sweet and blessed thing it is to see God answer the prayers that have been stored up for 50 years many of you um know the the rest of this story. I'll just kind of skim and run to the end here. Esther did go in before the king, and in the providence of God, he received her. Haman went home plotting Mordecai's demise, and that night, the king just happened not to be able to sleep. You remember this? And so he called for a little light reading from the palace chronicles. Nothing like a little light reading to put you to sleep and listening to the uh, chronicler drone on. But in the middle of that, the chronicler just happened to read that particular section where Mordecai's unrecognized deed from back in chapter 2 was recounted. And so the next day, the king comes into the court and Haman just happened to be the only advisor to be in the court so early that day. And so the king instructs Mordecai to receive honors, ironically, by the hand of Haman himself. And so the Lord turns everything upside down. And and that that really is what's going to happen in the end, isn't it? The Lord turns everything upside down. In fact, he turns everything right side up again. All the world that's been upside down, becomes right side up. And so the next day, when Esther finally reveals Haman's plot to the king, Haman ends up getting hung on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. And Mordecai is given Haman's own position of honor and power. And this is the way history goes. Because In the long run, God will see all things set right again. The weak will confound the mighty, the foolish will instruct the wise, the poor will be enriched, the downtrodden will rule, and those who lose their lives for Christ's sake will find them, and those who seek their own lives will end up losing them. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen? Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And sometimes the Lord gives a little glimpse of that. Well, King Ahasuerus gave the order that the Jews should be able to defend themselves on that great day of slaughter that had been planned. And by the grace of God, they defeated their enemies and God gave them as the book says, rest and peace on that day. And with the overturning of Roe and Casey this past week, states are free to pass legislation restricting and eliminating abortion in their states. And praise God, nearly half of the states have done just that including Texas, where almost all abortions will be outlawed from the moment of fertilization, praise the Lord. Here's the final chapter. Let's just skip to the end. Esther chapter 9 and verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that has been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday and that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. What a joyous celebration that must have been when God stepped in in hidden providence in His foreseeing all things and planning all things and stepped up and gave a great deliverance for His people. That deliverance that will foreshadow that day that He He makes all things right in the end. This was truly a day of the Lord. And you know, I thought about this story and I think one of the things that struck me again reading through it is that there really are no ideal heroes in the story, like earthly heroes. I mean, there are there are some wonderful figures, certainly Mordecai and especially Esther. These were godly people and yet, of course, they were flawed. Uh, they assimilated to their culture, they were unwilling to identify with the people of God. Nevertheless, Esther stepped up when the moment came, courageously, even willing to risk death in order to save people. You think about the other major actor, the one whose decree enabled the Jews to really stand up and defend themselves and to overcome their enemies, and he's just a pagan king, uncaring about this particular people group. He's only concerned with uh, seeing an increase in his treasury that was promised by him. In the end, he's willing to try to save them for the sake of Esther. And, and so while there's no you know like perfect human heroes in this story or in any story of God's providence, there is behind the scenes the one figure who stands large and tall and that is our great God Himself, the unseen hand of God throughout the entirety of this book, graciously working, providentially, answering prayers, and bringing everything about in His own timing. And in the end, God's people declared a holiday. They feasted, for God had turned their mourning into gladness. And I think this just should be a day of feasting, a day of A day of blessing, a day of praise, a day of thanksgiving, a day to remember all that God has done for us. A day to remember how many prayers He's answered. And of course, we should make no mistake, the work is not done. Right? Abortions, this is the reality, the sad reality, abortions will still continue all across this country. Half the state's abortion will still continue and be strengthened. Even in those states like Texas that have these laws that will now be able to be enforced, those laws are not always perfect. There's still much work to do, of course, and much prayer to be made. But today, I think, just should be a day of rejoicing, a day of thanksgiving. And praise to the Lord for the gracious providence of God has brought us to this point through many imperfect people, even through unbelievers, sometimes through courageous individuals, through people who just happened to be in the right place for the right time, and always by the prayers and intercessions of God's people. Today is a day of rejoicing for the kind providence of a gracious God. Amen.